Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 51b, Final Touches, Allied Armies and the Somme. So by this point, you've no doubt figured out that there are a few loose ends we need to tie up before we can begin dissecting the Somme in more detail. This episode was originally part of 51a, but decided to crop it out and release it on its own. Things had gotten too large and bloated, so I decided this was a much easier way to keep ourselves on track. Since we covered the political aspects in the last episode, our focus for today will be how the British, French, but also German armies were preparing themselves for the coming offensive. We'll start by taking a brief tour of the battlefield before looking at each army in more detail. We'll lay out what their objectives on July the 1st were, and how they sought to accomplish them. Obviously, this latter point relates more to the Allied armies, so to end off, we'll touch on what the Germans were up to in the meantime. We must not forget that although the Somme was an Anglo-French plan, the German army had a significant role to play as well. The German perspective is really quite interesting, so I look forward to going into that. There is an accompanying map which I've posted to the website as well. I recommend keeping it handy, because I'll be referring to it throughout the episode. So without further ado, let's get started. The Somme Valley has seen many battles throughout its history. First created as a subdivision in 1790, the Somme and surrounding area was carved from the ancient province of Picardy, which historically stretched from north of Noyon to Calais. Over time, the Somme has attracted many invaders. The Romans had been the first, followed by the Vikings, English, and Spanish. Rome's legacy can still be seen today in the lattice of roadworks which bisect much of the 1916 battlefield. Many of these roads served as a boundary line for the Allied armies, so they'll have an important role in how the battle was fought. For our purposes, the most significant of these roads, which links Albert to Bapaume, ran astride the British-held sectors. Picardy more or less remained under foreign occupation until the fall of the Holy Roman Empire. In 1790, it was finally given back to France just as the clouds of revolution were beginning to form. In an attempt to strengthen the national government, Louis XVI ordered that the provinces be divided into smaller departments. These departments were locally administered through a regional capital, and almost all of them were named after geographic features in the area. Picardy was thus divided into two departments, the Somme and Aisne, both of which took their names from the major rivers which ran through them. After 1914, the Somme sector was a quiet corner of the Western Front. No major action had taken place, yet the Germans used this time to build a strong network of fortifications. Since the topsoil was chalk-based, this allowed them to tunnel underground. Chalk, if drained, can be easily mined and the Germans were keen to exploit this advantage. From their positions atop the plateaus, the Germans had spent the last two years constructing a network of reinforced dugouts. These subterranean fortresses, which could be as deep as three meters in some places, were built to withstand anything the Allies threw at it. Above ground, these were formidable obstacles. The Germans had practiced bringing their machine guns up and down the dugout steps hundreds of times, and each meter of the front had been pre-sighted for artillery. On the heights overlooking the British sectors, the Germans had erected two enormous strongpoints, the Schwaben and Leipzig redoubts. These two redoubts bristled with interlocking trenches, dugouts, and machine gun emplacements, and their positioning on a declined slope shielded them from high-explosive shells. With typical German efficiency, they offered complete protection to forward units, 
reinforced with layers of rebar and concrete, they supplied everything an occupying army required. Electric lamps illuminated the dark passageways, and basic sanitation systems such as running water and flush toilets were installed. Behind them were a web of secondary forts which bridged the front line to rear areas, ensuring German communication lines were shorter and better protected. Supporting artillery and reinforcements could be brought forth on a moment's notice. From their positions, German observers had an unobstructed view of the British positions. They could see firsthand the great buildup of arms and men marshalling opposite them. Morning, noon, and night, the rumble of trucks and locomotives reverberated throughout the countryside, and great palls of dust could be seen on the horizon, a telltale sign of imminent attack. Across no man's land, the largest army ever fielded by the British Empire was assembling behind the front line. They too knew something was in the air. Many had arrived with only several weeks of rudimentary training, while others had been in France since 1914. 200,000 men, nearly half of which were Kitchener's untested divisions, had been called upon for this great undertaking. For thousands of men in the newly minted BEF, their arrival in France marked their first step into a larger world. They had joined because they wanted to fight, to defend the empire against the onslaughts of Prussian militarism. Military service not only offered them glory, but a chance to escape from the mundane, an opportunity for adventure and excitement. As they moved from dockyards and into the interior, the sights which greeted them offered contrasting images of a war that had engulfed Europe. En route to the front, they saw the great war machines up close. Huge stockpiles of shells and guns of all caliber lined the roads. Daily munitions trains rolled in through the 17 railheads, which connected the labyrinth of trenches to stations behind the line. Quiet villages became bustling centers of military life as divisional and battalion headquarters were set up. But despite all the chaos, there was a sense of normalcy which lingered in the background. Thriving farms and bountiful crops surrounded them. Belgian and French farmers converged on the villages to greet the soldiers and to press them into buying goods and produce. In the larger towns such as the regional capital Amiens, new arrivals were stunned at the amount of leisurely activities available to them. Although military life was difficult, British officers soon acknowledged the importance of recreation, especially for an army made up of civilian soldiers. Back in billets, men could smoke cigarettes, swap stories, and purchase coffee and sweets from the merchants in town. Daily sports tournaments were organized, and at night, comedy troops performed to pack houses. Although the men enjoyed this bit of R&R, they knew the war was never far away. The rumble of the guns could be heard in the distance, and the constant rush of field ambulances was a sobering reminder of what awaited them. As they deployed into forward areas, those destined for the Somme would have passed through the town of Albert. Albert acted as the central hub for the British army. All units would be processed through this checkpoint before fanning out to their assigned sectors. Before 1914, Albert was a small, undistinguished town with narrow, cobbled streets, typical of northern France. It lays about 22 kilometers northeast of Amiens. Although set amidst rich farmland, Albert was actually an industrial town, having several iron foundries. The most distinguishing feature of Albert was the impressive basilica which was topped by a statue of the Virgin Mary holding up an infant Jesus. The gilded statue was known as the Golden Virgin. As it did 100 years ago, the Golden Virgin remains a powerful symbol for the Somme area. The Germans had subjected Albert to heavy shelling, using the Golden Virgin as a marker to aim at. In January 1915, 
a German shell had glanced off the basilica, shearing off part of its foundation and leaving the statue on a precarious angle. A local legend soon grew. The Golden Virgin was renamed the Leaning Virgin, and the story went that until she fell, the war would not end. For the Germans, this meant trying to knock it down, while the British would use ropes and tethers to keep it in place. I've uploaded a photograph of the basilica from when I visited Albert in 2011, along with a picture of the Leaning Virgin from 1916. The basilica was completely destroyed in 1918, but has since been restored to the way it looked prior to the war. In fact, most of Albert looks much the same. Cool place to visit, I highly recommend. On the eve of the Somme offensive, Henry Rawlinson's 4th Army occupied a 25-kilometer stretch of front, sandwiched between the Somme and Ancre rivers. 4th Army was comprised of five attack corps, who were responsible for carrying out the assault against the German positions. As I mentioned back in episode 50, we have not discussed what the on-the-ground objectives would be, so we're going to go ahead and address that now. If you take a look at the map, you'll see how the British forces were arrayed. Running from the Anka to the Somme, you had the 8th, 10th, 3rd, 15th, and 13th attack corps. In a few minutes, we'll be going through each corps in more detail, so we'll be sure to have the map handy. The plan for July the 1st was to take the German front line and all their fortified villages from the Serre to Montauban, and then to press on to their second line of defenses. Rawlinson and his corps commanders knew the German defenses were strong. Aerial reports indicated the Germans had deepened their defense line, each one comprising a number of trench networks, barbed wire, and machine gun posts. They had also fortified several villages in wooded areas closer to the rear. Rawlinson understood that the first hours of attack were crucial. The infantry would need to establish a foothold in that brief window if the attack was to press forward. Due to his army's lack of experience, however, Rawlinson expected the heavy artillery to do much of the dirty work, allowing the infantry to pass through with minimal opposition. The aim of the bombardment was to level the German trenches, destroy the machine gun posts, and cut the barbed wire. To help the infantry progress, the opening bombardment was initially planned to last five days. It was to begin on the morning of June the 24th and last until the evening of the 28th. During the first two days, codenamed U and V days, the artillery would concentrate on cutting the German wire and neutralizing artillery camouflaged in the woods. In the remaining three days, codenamed W, X, and Y days, the shrapnel shells would be exchanged for high explosive, and the process of obliterating trenches and destroying enemy dugouts would commence. Throughout the five days, Aerial recon and raiding parties would be sent across no man's land to assess the damage. It was assumed that such an intense bombardment would lead to the attacking infantry being able to pass through unopposed. To prepare the troops for jump off, the British had also been busy laying a series of mines under the German trenches. These enormous charges were laid in areas where German defenses were judged the weakest. The largest of these mines was buried at La Boiselle, where the 34th Division, part of Thomas Borland's 10th Corps, was to attack. This mine, known today as Lochnagar Mine, was packed with nearly 60,000 pounds of Aminal, and when it went boom on the morning of July the 1st, left a crater 80 meters wide and 22 meters deep. Visitors to La Boiselle can visit the crater today, which, despite a century of overgrowth, is a terrifying sight to behold. If you're ever in the area, it's just a kilometer south of La Boiselle, near the memorial to the Irish Brigade. Although Lochnagar Mine was the largest to be put down, 
there were a few others scattered about. A second mine was installed 20 meters beneath Beaumont Hamel, while four more were planted opposite Fry Corps and Carnoy, sections which were held by the 15th and 13th Corps. Regardless of where you were attacking, the British would be fighting uphill every step of the way. This was just the lay of the land, and the attackers had no choice. The Germans occupied an expansive plateau which overlooked the British positions, forcing them to attack on an inclining slope. This plateau covered most of the landscape between the Somme and Ankur, and while it peaked at about 120 meters, the elevation itself was not steep. In many sectors, such as the ones held by the 8th and 10th Corps, infantry would be advancing without the benefit of natural cover, meaning that first-line objectives would need to be consolidated quickly, allowing the second and third waves to push on through. It was clear that 4th Army would need help in these opening stages, so in order to draw off enemy reserves, a diversionary attack was planned to take place to the left of Hunter Weston's 8th Corps. Two divisions, the 46th and 56th from Allenby's 3rd Army, would launch a surprise attack at the Gum Corps salient, which was to begin just as 4th Army went over the top. This attack would have two goals in mind, to form a pocket in the German defenses north of Gum Corps, and to protect 8th Corps' flank as it drove past Beaumont Hamel. This pattern would repeat itself down the British front. As 8th Corps attacked between Beaumont Hamel and Serre, the 10th Corps, further south, were given the task of assaulting the Schwaben and Leipzig redoubts. These twin redoubts protected the approach to Tiepval, a fortified village which stood atop the plateau. This difficult task would be carried out by two divisions, the 36th Ulsters and the 32nd. The assaults on Schwaben and Leipzig would be the site of some of the most desperate fighting in the offensive's opening days. But it was also an area which would see the closest chance of success. The Ulsters would achieve a breakthrough, but with the offensive snagged elsewhere, they would be forced to pull back. Moving south, astride the Albert-Bapalm Road, the 8th and 34th Divisions from William Pulteney's 3rd Corps would go into battle two minutes after the detonation of Lochnagar Mine. Because it was centered to the British access, 3rd Corps' objectives were critical in the success of the overall plan. The terrain here was lower and more favorable. There were two valleys on either side of La Boiselle, which offered attacking infantry cover against the German defenses along the spur line. This was where Lochnagar Mine was to play a role. If the opening bombardment had not done its job, the subsequent explosion would stun the Germans enough to allow the infantry to pass through. This was of course in theory, and will soon see why this optimism was badly misplaced. Following the British front line as it curves eastward, the 7th and 21st Divisions of 15th Corps would be attacking between two spur lines south of Freikorps and Mametz. The aim here was to capture the lattice of roadwork southwest of Freikorps, thus securing the flank of 13th Corps to the east. The assault on Freikorps would commence after the detonation of three underground mines, known as the Triple Tambor. Because Freikorps stood at the turning point in the British line, the Corps commander, Sir Henry Horn, decided to attack the village through a flanking maneuver, thus hoping to avoid the need for a direct attack. The three-mine detonation was planned to draw off German reserves, allowing the flanking parties to move in from opposite sides. While all this was happening, Congreve's 13th Corps would be pressing northward. Opposite them was the town of Montauban, which, like Tiepval, was protected by the formidable Palmiers Redoubt. To the right of Montauban 
was a brickyard which the Germans had turned into an underground fort. This cluster of factory buildings and chimneys was to be assaulted after Montauban had been secured. This brickyard also served as a headquarters for three German regiments in the area. If taken, their armies on the north bank of the river would be cut off from those in the south. By and large, British efforts in the south were much better than those in the north. A combination of factors led to this, but we'll need to wait on that so we don't get too sidetracked here. So I know that that is a lot to take in, but keep in mind that we're just setting the scene here. We'll be examining 4th Army's efforts in more detail in future episodes, so don't feel like you have to remember all this stuff all at once. But so far, we've only covered the British positions north of the Somme. To the south, the French 6th Army was gearing up for the assault as well, so I want to focus our attention there for the last bit of the episode. As you'll recall from episode 50, Fayal had never warmed to the idea of attacking on the Somme. He felt the terrain was unsuitable for such a large operation with too many villages and wooded areas standing in the way of the Allied advance. In Foch's original plans, Fayol's 6th Army was to be supported by the 10th Army further south, but as Verdun continued to drain away French resources, plans for the 10th Army were eventually scrapped. To Fayol, this did little to alleviate his pessimism. Ultimately, Fayol understood that attacking on the Somme was not his decision to make. He may have disagreed with Joffre's strategy, but he acknowledged that the war was headed towards attrition. In many ways, Fayol faced the same problems as Douglas Haig. The three corps which comprised his army, the 20th, 35th, and 1st Colonial, were full of recent call-ups who had been sent to the Somme to gain frontline experience. Like the British areas north of the river, the French sectors had also been quiet for the past two years. Units which had served in Artois and Champagne were often sent to the Somme for rest and recuperation. Now this might sound odd to us given what's to come, but it's a good reminder that the fighting did not always take place in the same areas. In fact, one of the features which made the Somme an attractive option for Hagen Joff was the fact that the ground had not been torn up by artillery. In some places, no man's land resembled an unkept field rather than a war zone. It was covered in knee-high grass and still teemed with wildlife. Since the ground's integrity had been upheld, it was expected that this would allow the infantry to cross with greater speed and maintain close contact with their neighbors. This was definitely an advantage, but it also brought inherent risks. Like Hag, Fayol's infantry were new and inexperienced. But, unlike Hag, Fayol was accustomed to commanding large bodies of men. He also had the benefit of an experienced artillery corps, which allowed him greater flexibility with the battle plan. Since Fayol remained pessimistic of their chances, he chose the slow, methodical approach, and the attack plan was to maintain enough momentum to carry the infantry forward one step at a time. It will be a battle of a month or more, which must be continued without break, Fayol had told his corps commanders. Fayol held two advantages over his British allies. The first was that the French front line was remarkably straight. This was helpful for two reasons. One, it made monitoring the battle that much easier and two, allowed Fayol to concentrate his guns and infantry along a single axis. The British did not have this advantage. If you look at the map, the British front line forms a salient at Maricor, which meant you had some divisions attacking from the east and others from the south. Launching an attack like this, especially for an army as inexperienced as the BEF, was incredibly risky. Fayol 
could exercise a tighter grip on his formations since they were all attacking from the same point. Sixth Army's objectives were to be completed in three stages. Stage 1 was to capture the Maricorps salient north of the Somme, while the 34th Corps drove towards Estre, parallel to the Roman road in the south. Once Estre and Maricorps were secured, the 1st Colonial Corps would join in a three-pronged attack against the Flucor Plateau. Capturing this important ridge would leave the German divisions blind to events astride the river. If the British attacks went according to plan, the German defenses in the south would collapse, allowing 6th Army to push on and hopefully reach Parigny. The capture of Parigny, of course, being a long-term goal, and not something Fayol expected on day one. Now, as we've mentioned a few times now, the French efforts on July the 1st were largely successful. This has been credited to better infantry tactics, heavier weight of shelling, and just overall better organization. But there is one point which often gets overshadowed. The Germans were not expecting the French to attack. Like, at all. So to close up for this week, let's end off by talking about the Germans, shall we? To understand what the German army was up to, we need to back up just a little bit. You'll recall from our episodes on Verdun that Falkenhayn expected an Allied counterattack at some point. Whether this would be a French or British-led attack was immaterial. Either way, Falkenhayn assumed that when it was launched, the Germans would easily deflect it, allowing them to begin hammering the Allied armies back to Paris. As Verdun wore on, it became apparent that the British would be the ones making the attack. Falkenhayn assumed that the French were near breaking point, and with the British filling the gaps in the line, that was the obvious conclusion. Falkenhayn welcomed this with open arms. He knew the British would have to attack before they were ready, and this offered him an invaluable opportunity to end the war on German terms. However, he failed to see the flip side of this. British reinforcements freed up French divisions, which in turn meant prolonging Verdun for the foreseeable future. On the one hand, Falkenhayn should have been pleased about this. After all, it was proof that his strategy had some merit. The problem was that the clock had been reset to zero, and as France poured in more men, Germany was forced to answer in kind. So by the summer, Verdun had lasted longer than Falkenhayn predicted, and as the British continued to build in strength, his only hope was to end the Meuse battle before the attack came. Falkenhayn knew full well what the British possessed, both in manpower and material. Manning the German defenses were eight divisions of the 2nd Army, commanded by Fritz von Bülow. Von Bülow remains a shadowy figure in First World War histories. He died before he could publish a memoir, so we don't know a whole lot about him. By all accounts, though, he was a competent and resourceful commander. Most of the information we have on him comes secondhand through one of his staff officers, the future field marshal Erich von Manstein, who would go on to mastermind Germany's invasion of France in 1940. Manstein described von Bülow as one of the best army commanders on the Western Front, and von Bülow's handling of the German defenses on the Somme lends itself to this assessment. By the spring, von Bülow had detailed information regarding the enemy's strength. He had acquired most of this information from the British themselves, who, in 1916, had a bad habit of relaying sensitive intel over insecure wireless channels. Von Bülow had brought this information to Falkenhayn during one of his repeated visits. His eight divisions were stacked against 21 Allied, and he was already dangerously overstretched. Now I need to pause and make a small correction from a few weeks ago. In episode 47, Crisis at Verdun, I had said that Falkenhayn refused to acknowledge the British threat. 
believing the Somme offensive was a ruse for a larger attack closer to the coast. This was not entirely correct. I misread the source and got the interpretation mixed up. Falkenhayn understood the attack was coming, but wanted to keep von Bülow's army weak while reinforcing the 6th army near Arras. So essentially, his plan was to have 2nd army absorb the bulk of the attack, and then swoop down from the north and catch the British at their weakest. So it wasn't that Falkenhayn refused to believe von Bülow's reports. It was that he never intended to reinforce him in the first place. That was a mistake on my part, and I want to apologize for relaying this inaccurate information. So what did von Bülow do in the meantime? After receiving no help from Falkenhayn, he returned to his army and pondered his next move. Although vastly outnumbered, not all hope was lost. Von Bülow had confidence in his troops, who had occupied the Somme area for many months. They knew the terrain well, and had spent a great deal of effort strengthening their defenses. In 1916, German defenses were modeled on elasticity. The Germans never had more than a few machine guns in their forward line. This was deliberately done to absorb the shock of the opening advance and to break the cohesion of the Allied assault. It was inevitable that the Allies would get past this thinly held line, especially as more guns and manpower were made available. So the Germans held the bulk of their reserves in second and third line areas. Once the attackers were isolated in the battle zone, these secondary defenses would push back. Pre-sighted artillery would target sensitive areas, while elevated machine guns would prevent the fragmented enemy from reorganizing. Specially trained companies would then push the attackers back through a series of vigorous counterattacks, eventually restoring the integrity of the position. This had been the modus operandi for the German army since 1915. Von Bülow faced an unprecedented challenge. He was defending an area against two allied armies, one which was growing more powerful by the day. Since the main attack would fall north of the Somme, Von Bülow had no choice but to reinforce from existing formations. He cannibalized his armies, taking divisions from the south and relocating them opposite the British. This left the units holding the front south of the river, opposite the French, stretched dangerously thin. Since the British would have a tough time cracking the German defenses, this validates Falkenhayn's decision in some way. But where the German chief woefully miscalculated was his assessment of the French army's strength. The long and the short of it was that neither von Bülow nor Falkenhayn expected the French to attack, let alone with three full-strength corps. They thought that, if anything, a French commitment would be limited to a diversionary effort, and Falkenhayn seems to have believed that they would remain in their trenches, restricting their role to the opening bombardment only. This here is a big reason why French and British efforts were so markedly different. The French ultimately had the element of surprise while the British were facing a reinforced enemy who fully expected them. When examining what went wrong on July the 1st, we tend to forget that the Germans were not an easy opponent. They too were fighting for their lives. There have been too many histories which focus on why British efforts failed, with most of the blame being credited to Haig and Rawlinson. But very little has been said about the skill and discipline of the German defenders. The Battle of the Somme was their fight as well and this oft-forgotten part of the story, is something I can't wait to begin unpacking. So that's going to wrap things up for this week. In the next full episode, we'll return to the Somme and kick things off on July the 1st. 
tracking a coherent narrative of the first day of the psalm is next to impossible. There's just too much going on at once, so the best approach will be to focus on one area before moving on to the next. Our focus for episode 52 will be the British efforts, primarily the assaults on the Schwaben and Leipzig redoubts. This is arguably the most famous battle to come from the first day, so it's a good place to orientate ourselves before wadding into less familiar territory. As always, be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. If you have any questions or comments, you can follow us on Twitter at Great War Podcast or reach us through email at thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. If you are enjoying the show and want to help us out, there are a couple of ways to do so. You can make a one-time donation through the homepage. Donations help cover the cost of hosting and acquiring new sources. There is still a ton of material ahead, so I'm always on the hunt for new books and materials. I just purchased Jack Sheldon's study of the German army on the Somme. It's been a fascinating read, and I'm really looking forward to sharing some of his amazing research. Another way to help the show is to look us up on iTunes and leave us a 5-star review. iTunes charts their podcast based on the number of user reviews, so the more feedback we'll have, the higher we'll place. This will help keep us afloat in the rankings and help attract new listeners. This has been episode 51B of the Great War Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again shortly.